This is episode number six with Nikki Dukas. Coming up. And I also think that's one of the things I loved about acting was to be on stage and nobody was talking but me. I mean, I think that was the thing about being in a big family. Be an orthodontist because they don't have office hours. There's no emergencies if you're an orthodontist by day and an actor by night. Nathan, this is the thing. People kept saying to me, what are you going to do if you don't get in as the years rolled by? And I just kept saying, I'm going. I knew I was good enough to be at ACT. I knew that. This is where I start with what exactly are you trying to say? Not generally, but what are the major ideas that you're trying to impart? Hey there. Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to The Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for 30, 40, 50 plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agan. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California, done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur, work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd, love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. Just so you know, there's going to be about 10 episodes for the first season of this podcast. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check them out. You can get a book that's an hour long or 15 hours long. Doesn't matter. Whatever you pick, it's free. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. I do have a recommendation with a fantastic narrator. If you want to hear an actor who is exceptional at this stuff, check this book out. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, read by Ray Porter. Ray is one of the greats, and he's been named Audible's Narrator of the Year. Now, don't get thrown by the cover. It's not a typical zombie book, which is not my kind of genre. It was the reviews that sold me. I mean, people really enjoyed the story, but thought that Ray was the true hero of this one. I mean, they loved him so much. Some people wished they could give him more than five stars. And when I started listening to this book, I honestly had to remind myself several times that it's just him reading the books and not a dozen different actors. He's that good. And I've been lucky enough to work with Ray on stage, and I know what a great talent he is. So here's actually a clip from Patient Zero, read by Ray Porter. Chapter 1 
When you have to kill the same terrorist twice in one week, then there's either something wrong with your skills or something wrong with your world. And there's nothing wrong with my skills. They came for me at the beach, nice and slick, two in front, one big cover man behind in a three-point close while I was reaching for my car door. Nothing flashy, just three big guys in off-the-rack gray, all of them sweating in the Ocean City heat. The point man held up his hands in a no-problem gesture. It was a hot Saturday morning, and I was in swim trunks and a Hawaiian shirt with mermaids on it over a Tom Petty t-shirt, flip-flops and wayfarers. My piece was in a locked toolbox in the trunk with a trigger guard clamped on it. So you can choose this book, which clocks in at 14-plus hours and, for me, flew by, or choose any of the endless options that Audible offers. Could be a book, a newspaper, a magazine, or even a class. It is that easy. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Again, that's workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial. Today on the show is Nikki Dukas, an actor, director, teacher, and accent coach. Originally from Massachusetts, same as me, she studied at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has an MFA from the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. We get into what it took for her to get in there and her takeaways from that experience. She's a regular at South Coast Repertory Theater in Costa Mesa, California, where she has appeared in five world premieres, and she has worked at numerous other regional theaters across the country. She has nearly 40 credits on IMDb and includes work on the show Modern Family and a recurring role on Desperate Housewives. She has taught scene study, acting, and Shakespeare in Los Angeles and Florida, at theater companies, schools, and colleges. Nikki was actually one of my first acting teachers after college, and she's become a great friend over the years. She's one of the most supportive and warm and hardworking people I know, and she's a fantastic actress, too. In addition to classes, we've worked together on Harold Pinter's Betrayal, Noel Coward's Tonight at 8.30, and I've kind of lost count how many times I've seen her on stage. In this episode, we talk about growing up with older siblings, how she ended up in Madison, her criteria for doing good work, her process for working on text, and what she encourages her students to do. Now, at the time we recorded this, she was in rehearsals for the play King Charles III, which was running at the Pasadena Playhouse, and we do a bit of work on one of the monologues from that play, so be sure to stick around for that. Now, at the time of publishing this episode, Nikki has directed a production of The Hot House by Harold Pinter that is now running at the Antias Company in Glendale. So if it's still running when you hear this and you can make it, I encourage you to check it out. I want to mention that I had never heard about Nikki's mom and what had happened when she was a kid. And after we wrapped up this conversation, her and I kept talking and we spoke more about that book and her mom. You'll hear what I mean when you get to that part of the interview. 
And it seemed like this particularly amazing connection. It felt a bit like this magic interview moment that it just happened. It wasn't planned. It was something that I learned new. And then there was a bit of recall and I just kind of shared what I was thinking. And it was a pretty cool moment for both of us. One of the ways I kind of judge how these interviews go and how I'm doing is if there's a moment where I feel like here are people talking about their own story and if they can have a moment of either insight or realization into their own life because of something we've talked about or something I've asked, that to me is a really great part of an interview. It doesn't always happen and I still get really fantastic conversations, but that is definitely one of those things I strive for. And like many things, you can't plan it, you can't try to make it happen. Sometimes it just happens. And so Nikki and I both felt that that was one of those kinds of moments, and you'll hear how it happens in today's episode. So here we go with episode number six. Please enjoy my chat with Nikki Dukas. Where are you, Chicago? I'm in Chicago. You've been there a while now. Uh, yes, it's been... Um, well, four, yeah, well, three years, um, three years in Chicago. I mean, off and on, there's still been a lot of travel outside of there. And um, you now rival all of the travel I've been doing. Well, I don't know about that. You stay longer. You and your husband uh, jet-setting the world. Yes, Leo's in Stockholm right now. Making the world a better place, one, one company and corporation. One company at a time. That's all we can do, Nathan. That's all we can do. <laughs> You know, I was actually, I was actually thinking, um, or wondering, I should say, is are you busier on your days off than when you're actually working? Because you always seem to be just so packed. It never changes. Every time I think I'm going to get a break, I don't get a break. And you know, this play I'm doing now, I'm also doing the accent coaching. So basically, every second I'm there, I'm. Focus. You're working. And then also, I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of directing now, so I'm always watching the director. It's more my nature, I guess. I don't think I used to be like this. I think it's being married to Leo Marks has made me like constantly busy. <laughs> Was he a constantly busy person? He likes or is that. He? He, that's okay. where he likes to be. Yeah. For the most part. So what is. What does relaxation actually look like to you? Can you remember what, uh, what this, what this is like? Fondly. Um, no, when I, I, I can relax. I mean, that's, I mean, and that's why I exercise. I try to swim every day and, uh, and I like to read. I mean, to me, that's the most relaxing thing to do is to read and to, and, or to be outside. True relaxing, very rarely, very rarely. That's the part about my life that I do miss. You know, one of the, one of the fun things in, in prep for, for talking today is, you know, reading about different things that I didn't know about. And then, of course, there's like the kind of obvious thing that I might even, it just dawned on me. I was like, oh, I might totally gloss over this. Is your name? And like, that's never been like a conversation topic between you and I. But, uh, you know, in kind of researching it, it's like, okay, there are certain qualities attributed to, um, and of course, the, the goddess is pronounced Nike, correct? Incorrect. Incorrect. Okay. Yes. This is why, this is why uh, <laughs> we're talking. Uh, it's, it's actually, it depends on who you ask. If you ask a Greek scholar of classical Greek, they'll say Nike. But if you ask somebody who lives in Greece, modern Greece, they pronounce it Niki. It's Niki. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so 
So some of the qualities are like speed and strength and, and victory uh, that is attributed to this goddess. So yeah, she's the goddess of victory. She rode on Athena's shoulder when Athena came into battle. She was riding on the shoulder of Athena. Now, now the Nikki Dukas I know kind of <laughs> personifies the, that speed and, and strength. I would say, like you, you kind of you you dart, uh, but very um, very strategically. So was this was this like. Do, like a divine intervention in the naming or do you think like you did you inhabit the qualities or one which led which led which one the name was definitely strategic i was named because when i was i don't know if they had i don't know if they had this name in mind before i was born but i'm told that they named me nikki because my mother almost died when i was born and i almost died and I was in the incubator for a couple of weeks, and so they named me Nikki because they thought I wasn't going to live. And um, I, but I think my personality is inherited from probably my father. What you just described to me is my father. <laughs> okay, so so what did you and what did your father do? He was a lawyer. He was a lawyer who loved to go to the theater. <laughs> okay. So, and was he like, but he just, he just had that kind of strength and speed, like in, like he would dart around very strategically. What you're doing with your hands not going back and forth is, is very, is a good metaphor. (laughs) And so, and you grew up, you grew up in Massachusetts. We have this in common. What part of uh, Massachusetts? In Lexington, which is birthplace of American history, about a half hour outside of Boston. And was it uh, was it just you, or did you have you have a lot of siblings? I have three older sisters. So so just four. There's four sisters in the family. Yes. Okay. And uh, what was it like being at the tail end of, uh, of that? <laughs> uh, it was you know it was it was it had its ups and it had its downs. I I I had a big age difference between my oldest sister and I was ten years, and she was sort of she was a really good big sister, and she took really good care of me, and and I have great memories of her reading to me and just being an advocate for me. But it was also a tough family because uh, very opinionated, very high, strong, competitive. So to be at the end of that, you had to. You've had to work really hard. But having said that, I mean, I think I also, the, the upside, the upside of that was that I, for a long time, I was very, I think I was very easygoing. And, you know, it's great to be the youngest because everybody get, makes the other, everybody, the, all the mistakes are made on the older ones. But then, you know, I had, when I was 11, my mother died. So, uh, of breast cancer. So, that was a big, you know, disruption in the, in the family. And, um, at that time, my, just one of my sisters was still in the house. My other two had already gone off. One of them was married and one was in college. So, uh, it was just the three of us left. And that was a big, you know, shift in my life. How, um, you know, cause you, you mentioned your dad was big in the theater. So I imagine there were a lot of outings to the theater as, yeah, as both a family. Did were, it? Yeah. We never went as a family. Cause when I was a kid, I mean, or rarely, I mean, he took us to the circus every year. And my, I remember vividly my mother driving me to school in the morning and telling me about plays or operas. They had so my mother's a big opera fan and getting great descriptions of movies they'd seen or plays they had gone to they they always went out at least once a week on to boston on a date um so we didn't go to and my father every sunday morning would play the cast album of some musical boston was a big tryout town then 
And so the, my parents would see every show that went to Broadway. In fact, when they got married, they had a choice between having a wedding and going to New York and seeing theater, and they went to New York and saw theater. So they were huge theater goers, culture lovers. Well, and, and at that time, I mean, it was such a, a rich um, right. uh, theater scene, you know, in terms of straight plays and, and, and you know, emerging theater writer or American writers and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure it must have been a really... Uh, amazing time. And there was a lot of good local theater too. There was this, I, I think, you know, uh, Lynn Milgram, who, uh, is in Antius, um, she, she was in a rep company in Boston and I'm sure my parents saw her in shows. Hmm. You know? Wow. Yeah. And so do you feel like the seed for your performing was that? It was at, at that time, whether it was through the circus or hearing your parents or the, the Sunday albums, Sunday cast albums, where did that Yeah, kind of I think it was, I mean, I think I grew up in a very cultured house. Art was also really important. Um, but I think, you know, I gotta say, I think I, I think I came out wanting to be an actor. My, <laughs> my godparents took care of me when I was like two years old and they, there are these photographs of me. They told me I would sort of pose for, pose for things. And I would take it very seriously. And if you laughed at me, I would get very angry. I was always very conscious of myself as somebody being looked at. And, um, and I also think that's one of the things I loved about acting was to be on stage and nobody was talking but me. I mean, I think that was the thing about being in a big family was, and being the very, always the smallest one of all my cousins and all my sisters. I was the youngest and just being, Everybody looking at me and being quiet was quite a pleasure to me. <laughs> so when did, um, did you do any like plays in, in, you know, grade school or high school? I can tell you there? the name of every performance I did from kindergarten on. I can tell you every single one. That's how important it was to me. <laughs> okay. Um, you, you know, you mentioned this, uh, you know, as you were growing up and, and then your mom passed away at 11, did that, or how did that shape your trajectory at that point? Did it, I mean, obviously it changed the family dynamic quite a bit, but like, how did it, um, how did it kind of inform your development? Cause I was, 11 is still pretty young. Yeah, it's really young. Uh, I, well, as a person, it shaped who I am as a, as an actor. I, the, the only thing I think it, um, uh, shaped was, I think, uh, it helped me because um I don't think my mother would have allowed it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I don't think she would have. It was not a serious enough occupation. And in fact, my oldest sister wanted to act. And when she went to college, that was very quickly squelched. She did a couple of plays and then they sort of stopped that. She did plays in high school, too. And I remember going to see her and the importance of being earnest at, at the high school and just being. And she played Auntie Mame in high school. And I just remember being like so thrilled by that. Um, and then once she got to college, she did a couple of plays and then that was the end of that. She really feels like my parents sort of stopped her from becoming an actor and, or my mother did. And, uh, with my father, my father was much more laissez-faire. So I pretty much got to do what I wanted to do. What did your older sister or what did she end up doing? I mean, a lot of people you know, don't. She's a visual artist. She's an extraordinary artist and she's a writer and she still writes and makes art. And she's been a, um, she was, for a long time, she did editing and technical writing. She always sort of incorporated the writing into what she did. And are your other sisters artistic as well, or have they gone different paths? Yeah, all, all my sisters are are artistic, uh, visually artistic, all of them. Um, my oldest sister went to Rodan School of Design, and um, 
I mean, she was more of, I always thought of her more as a visual artist than an actor, but, um, and then my second sister is also a painter, but she's a lawyer. And my third sister also wanted to be an actor, but sort of couldn't stand the lifestyle. And she's a therapist now. So we all, um, only one of my sisters didn't perform. So you mentioned something that I'm, I'm curious about. You, you said you, it was your third sister that couldn't, um, wasn't interested in the lifestyle of, of, of acting. So, and I'm jumping around a bit, but how, how did you, how do you tolerate the, the lifestyle of acting? Because it is, um, it is very volatile. It is very, uh, transitory. You know, there's, I mean, transient, there's a lot of, there's a lot of up and down to it. So how do you feel like you are able to handle that in ways that other people, for example, your sister aren't? Well, I think it's a combination of luck and, um, desire. I, I, I think I had a certain amount of luck where I, I, you know, I think the primary thing is what everybody says. I just really wanted to do it and nothing was going to stop me because when I graduated from college, I, I wanted very badly to go to graduate school and I auditioned for four years in a row before I got in and I did temp jobs and secretarial jobs and, um, and I kept acting at night and, um, and then I finally got into, um, ACT and, and then when I graduated from ACT, I got an agent and I went to LA and, and that was really hard. There were a lot of years where I did a lot of small parts on television and I didn't do theater for a long time. I just, uh, you know, it's really true that cliche. If you really want to do it, it's miserable, but nothing's going to stop you, you know? All right. Well, I want to, there's a couple things I want to, <laughs> we touched on very briefly in that and, and there's a lot of great stuff I want to get into. But now, did you have that kind of drive with other things in your life? Like, were you really into sports as a kid? Or, or I mean, was there other stuff that you were just like, yes. you know, no matter what your parents said that I'm going to do this, I really want to do it. And where else well, did that show up? I was, I was also an art, a visual artist. I, I, until I was probably in college, I drew every day of my life. It was really, uh, important to me and it's, and it still is. Um, but that was a very acceptable thing in my family because my mother was an artist also. Um, she just, uh, I think she, she was, she was very old fashioned and she was very suspicious of the world of the stage, you know, um, even though even she the, loved yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but right. not her daughter. Anyway, was she, uh, what, what was her medium in terms of uh, visual art? Uh, she painted and drew and, um, you know, like oil, oil, um, and that yep. kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, her whole side of her family is incredibly creative. Did she, um, did she tend to favor like landscapes or portraits or everything, abstract? everything I have, I have drawings she did of me when I was a, a kid, portraits and, um, beautiful watercolor. I have watercolor of me on the beach that she did. She, she was sort of whenever she could, she, she was painting or drawing, but she was a housewife, a very frustrated housewife. Mm. What, um, what do you feel like you, took away from your relationship with your mom that you, that you still carry? Like what's something that you, yeah, that like from those first 11 years that you still have with you in terms of uh, your mom's either look on the world or her approach to things? She, uh, she was somebody who, like my father, was so curious about life. She loved to travel. And when she traveled, she would sort of research it and, study it. She was a great student of whatever she was interested in. Um, she just loved ideas and, and, um, she loved history and she was, she was always reading and, um, 
And, and she, you know, she loved the arts and she took us to museums and would talk to you about paintings. She just really was an appreciator. She's very visual and I'm a very visual person and we all are in my family. Uh, and you know, her frustration, she was definitely, um, a housewife from the sixties who should have been a career person and felt very stuck being a mother. And from that, I took, um, don't get stuck. Don't, uh, depend on anyone for your, survival depend on yourself and um it's i think it made me independent i mean i think my father was a very independent person as well but um from her i really saw you know my father also was sort of traditional immigrant family and really didn't want my mother to go out into the world and work and i just was even though he was very encouraging that we should all have careers in terms of his dynamic with my mother that was sort of and before she died, she started substitute teaching and she was going to go back to school and get her master's degree. And she was very well educated. She went to Radcliffe. She was a really smart person. But anyway, so I just thought, don't, don't let anybody mess your, what you want to do up with your life, live your life. You know, it it is so fascinating, you know, when you, um, you know, you talk to people and you learn about their dynamics with their parents because, you know, of course, like the parents can say one thing to the kids and, and be supportive. But of course, like the dynamics you see between the parents or, you know, how, um, you know, male female dynamics play out like they ha- they can have such an impact on kids who, you know, yeah. sense of the world is forming and right. uh, either you embrace it or you rebel against that. Uh, you know, if you assume like, oh, this must be how it is or. I don't, I definitely don't want this to be how it is for me. You know, it, it just, right. it is really fascinating how those, those things can play out. Right. And hopefully when you get older, you get more strategic about it and say, okay, this is what I'm going to take that worked. And this is what I'm going to embrace, you know, and this is what I'm going to forgive. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, forgiveness is a, is a big quality to, to get old, <laughs> not only to your parents and your family in general, but yourself. That's right. And, and that kind of stuff. Um, all right. So I want to kind of uh, jump ahead just a little bit. You, you went to, uh, where'd you go to college? You went to university um, of Wisconsin at Madison. Okay. So how did you make the leap from Massachusetts to Madison? It was the only school I got into a, I really wanted to go to California all my life. I wanted to live in California. And, um, had you ever been there or visited or you just, nope. it was just the idea. Nope. Okay. <laughs> I was watching the Lucy show and seeing them sit in that car and sing California, here we come. I, I don't know what, I just wanted to live in California. And, um, and then when I was in high school, my father and I took a trip to California and I looked at Berkeley, which is where I wanted to go to and I didn't get into. And my sister had recommended, um, Madison to me because she had looked into it for grad school. And I was, I was thinking I was going to be a sociology major and, uh, because, you know, theater wasn't, pro- but it also had a really good theater department. And so I applied there and I got in. So I went <laughs> knowing absolutely nothing about it. I mean, it's totally blind. I mean, this is where my father with his laissez-faire attitude, you know, if my, my mother had been alive, this never would have happened. I want, I also wanted to go to a school that was not in New England. I wanted to go to a huge university. I didn't want to go to a small school. I wanted to go to a big university, not in New England. I just actually recently visited Madison for the first time, and it's beautiful right on the lake there. Yeah. And the college is, I mean, the college couldn't be closer to the water. It just kind yeah, of butts it's it beautiful. in a number of places. And so what was what was Madison like uh, at the time you were, you were in school there? I mean, because you have not far out, you know, you have flat, you know, farmland and all that. But then you have this really kind of bustling 
small town. Well, it's I mean, a small capital town feel, but with the university, and it's right, the capital yeah. of the state too. Um, right, but it has that kind of small town feel with the. It's like a university town. town. Yeah, yeah. At exactly. least when I was there, I haven't been there since I graduated. Yeah, it, you know, aside from the winter, which almost killed me, I, <laughs> I, I loved, 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 loved that school. Um, it was exactly what I wanted. It was this big place where every day you met someone you hadn't met before, people from all over the country, and then a lot of people from Wisconsin. And, you know, if you grow up in New England, there's a difference between people who grow up in the Midwest and New England. And that was really fascinating to me. And it was a wonderful theater department. I was really lucky. It was, it was an extraordinary department. I had some great acting teachers and I also had this amazing teacher who taught us um, Asian theater. He had written some books on um, Asian theater, and we did a whole year. You're, if you were an acting major, you could be a theater major with an acting specialization, which I was. You did five days a week. You took Tai Chi. You, you, you worked on plays in this with masks in this very deliberate sort of Asian sort of style of acting. And I learned so much about being still on stage and owning the space and um, economy of movement. It, it, and then I had all these wonderful other teachers too. I, I, I had this great teacher, Harold Dixon, who I recently ran into, who we had a history of, you know, styles acting class where we dress up in costumes and learn to move. And it was, it was a great program. I'm really glad I went there. I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of things that you still use and still think about. I mean, maybe they're more a little, a little more kind of second nature at this point, but mm -hmm. it, it sounds like there are still ideas you take from your time there, from the, the class. Yeah, I the think teacher. so. I mean, more, I think my, my, my grad school was m much more formative, but it was, it was probably one of the best platforms I could have, I could have, it was probably the best launching pad I could have, could have gotten the base foundations. I had a great, uh, acting grad student, TA Paulette Petretti, who taught me my first acting class. And she was the most imaginative, supportive, dynamic, wonderful teacher. And do you, um, was it, was it a lot to convince your dad to go to Madison for grad school was, or, or for college or was he? Oh no, he was, was he, just, he, he was just the opposite of my mind. Go anywhere you want. <laughs> And study whatever you want and do. No, he did not want me to study theater, but he wouldn't, he didn't stop me from studying theater. He wanted me to be an orthodontist because they don't have office hours. There's no emergencies if you're an orthodontist by day and an actor by night. <laughs> he, he, I could not impress upon him that that would not work. But how, how, how long did he hold on to that? Uh, oh, a while. And then when he finally <laughs> gave up on that, he moved towards, you've got to write your own one person show. Like, like Lynn Redgrave. <laughs> okay, right. Yes, those just drop out of you. Yes. I mean, he's probably right about that. I probably should write my own one-person show, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so was was Madison a very politically active time? It was. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. I mean, Madison and, and Berkeley were sort of the two, and I guess Kent State were, but Madison but Madison was sort of known as the Berkeley of the Midwest, and it, it was, you know, the protests of the 60s were over by then. I'm not that old. But I had professors who talked about, you know, going through, running through the tear gas. And there was the science building where I went to where, where the bomb had exploded and, uh, someone had died or I think two teachers died accidentally. And, um, and it was still a very, um, politically and liberal charged. Yeah. Atmosphere. 
not charged. I wouldn't say it was charged. It was, it was, you know, this was the late seventies. I graduated in 1980. So this was, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it was just a liberal university at that point. Sure. And, sure. and, 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 you know, yeah, it, there weren't any protests going on then or anything like that. That was my high school years. And I think, elementary I think school. nowadays it's, it, we're, we're kind of, in the state where at a lot of state capitals, uh, you know, whether you're in Austin, Texas or Madison, it's like there's kind of the protests du jour. Like there's always something going on at the, at, at the state yes, now. But I would say even then, you know, it was the beginning. Was it the beginning of the Reagan era? When was Reagan elected? It was starting to get pretty mild and boring at that point. I mean, Jane Fonda came and spoke. I remember that, but. And there was definitely, it was definitely a liberal campus, but it wasn't, you know, when I was in elementary school, that's when it was really exciting. That's what I would have liked. <laughs> mm. You know, that's when there were the protest marches and people were really getting out there and trying to change. Well, there was a lot going on in Boston too. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, people, people don't maybe necessarily think about it as much, but there was, uh, uh the, you know, the busing in Boston. I oh, mean, yeah. There was a lot. Oh, yeah. There was a lot going on there yeah, too. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, I know you lived outside the city, but were, did your parents talk oh, about that? We and- had we had um, the Medco program, which was kids bust in from Boston, uh, from Roxbury. Um, black kids uh, were bust in, like I don't know, probably in a school of I don't know. We had seven hundred kids in my graduating class. We probably had three Medco students, but um, no, of course, my parents were extremely politically aware, and my mother was an activist. My mother protested and wrote to her congressmen and senators. And, um, and I, you know, I remember going to rallies with my mother. Um, so yeah, we definitely talked about it. Wow. What, uh, what kind of rallies, uh, do you remember? Going we to? went to Eugene McCarthy's, uh, in Boston garden. We went to a rally for Eugene McCarthy. I remember that very well. And I remember going downtown to Lexington center and just with my picket signs protesting the war. And, you know, my sister was, what was she, 18 years old in 1968, something like that? No, she was 20 years old in 1968. So, you know, all her male friends were draft eligible for the draft for the Vietnam War. So that was a big part of our lives is, you know, how are my cousins going to get out of fighting? And basically in my culture, everybody was just trying to get out of it. And basically everybody did. I mean, that was the kind of, you know, we were... we. You know, my cousins went to college, and that's how they got out of it, and they figured out ways to get out of the draft. Well, and I and I know uh, your husband Leo is also a very politically active, mm-hmm. uh, socially active person. So, do you feel like was that something you were kind of hoping for in a partner? Is it someone that was equally politically socially aware, or has he made you even more politically socially aware? He's definitely more informed than I am. Um, but yeah, I don't think I would be attracted to somebody that wasn't interested in the world going on around them and wasn't political and cared about stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and what's great is, I mean, he takes a, a vested interest and really tries to, you know, get involved, get in the thick of it. Yeah, he really does. He really does. He's really, I really respect him for that. Okay. So, uh, and we, we could, we could talk for a, a long time about Leo. <laughs> I could tell you could talk for a long time about Leo too, but I wanted to, uh, ask about, you said it took four years for, for you to get into grad school. So yes, 
when you after you you graduated uh, University of Wisconsin Madison, and did you stay there or what? No, what was the four years? Uh, no, my of? senior year, I auditioned for grad school and I didn't get in. And then I moved to New York with a girlfriend of mine, and I lived there for six. I lived with my sister in Hoboken, which was very not gentrified then. We lived in this big old flat of an apartment, and. Um, and then six months later, I moved, uh, I was seeing this guy, uh, and we moved to, um, I had met him in Wisconsin. This was my, my first husband. I had met him in Wisconsin and he was in a grad school there. And so he wanted to switch. He wanted to get his PhD. So he applied to Stanford and he got into Stanford. And we, the following year, moved to, uh, San Mateo, California, which is sort of halfway between San Francisco and, Stanford, because by that time I, th- I thought I really wanted to go to ACT. So then I applied to ACT three times and some other schools too, before I finally got in. So when you finally got to California, you moved to San Mateo. Was it everything you had hoped for? <laughs> yes, it was. I'm telling what you. What was it? What was it you were, you were looking for? Or Palm trees. It, it <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, partly it was the climate, just a place where it wasn't cold ever. Um, well, and coming and, from Madison too. Well, and I used to stand outside and recess and ask if we could go in. It just seemed ridiculous to me that we were standing outside in the snow for recess. Um, I, I just felt, and I felt like in New England, this was true and truer in Madison, but just as true in New England, I felt like you spent the year waiting for summer to come and summer and fall were the reward for winter, which was the reality. And I just didn't want to live in a rea- in a world where the reality is winter. I, I, I just that didn't seem right. fair to me. So I I love this climate. <laughs> okay, so what I'm really curious about is like what were you doing during those four what the years? Because I mean, the, the, doing? Well, the ACT program is is what three years? Yes. Well, it was if you made it through the three years. Okay, all right, fair enough. But but you know, so you're applying for something that. You could have already been finished had you gotten in the first year. And so I think that takes an enormous amount of like kind of grit and determination to keep going. Hey, this is the thing. People kept saying to me, what are you going to do if you don't get in as the years rolled by? And I just kept saying, I'm going. Um, that's what I mean about you just have to do it. I knew I was good enough to be at ACT. I knew that. I was a terrible auditioner. And instead of getting someone to help me, I, I just kept plowing ahead. I finally got in because I got some coaching. Um, but I also, you know, and I also just had this thing like, oh, I'm good enough to be there, but I'm not the kind of person who gets in there. You know, there was a lot of head stuff going on too. On the other hand, it was really, really competitive. It was really hard to get into grad school. It's harder than it is now, I think. Really? Be- because there were fewer programs. And because, you know, I don't, I know, I mean, now I know they have callbacks and they fly people in. It's ridiculous. But, um, I just think there weren't as many programs. I don't know. That may, you know, that may not be true. Maybe there, maybe there are more places for people. But anyway. So were you doing theater locally or? I was. I was doing local theater and, uh, you know, my ex-husband was at Stanford. I was doing plays at Stanford and I was doing some uh, local stuff and I just kept acting and, I was always exhausted. I would have had a full-time job most of the time. And then I would be rehearsing and performing at night and um, and getting ready for that next audition. <laughs> what kind <laughs> of uh, full-time work did you pick, pick up? Mostly secretarial work. 
I hated it. <laughs> well, there's something behind that. <laughs> well, I just <laughs> that said, you know, it, it was excruciatingly dull. You know, I wasn't doing anything important. I, I was just sitting behind a desk answering a phone and mostly staring into space. It was so boring. What kind of what kind of uh, company or work or field was it? Oh, one was an employment agency. I worked there for a year. One was, and then I did a lot of temp work. So, okay. so I didn't put a bullet through my head just for the variety. Of- <laughs> okay, so you 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 finally get to ACT, and uh, we could talk for an hour just about that. But I, I I'm curious, what did you feel like you that ACT really set you up for in terms of uh, what you could take away, what you could leave with, and also what do you wish they had helped you with, you know, cause you spent yeah. so much time getting to there, getting through the program. Yeah. And you're like, geez, I really wish, you know, I'm grateful for this. And I wish it had also. Come yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. first I just want to say, I've met some really nice people doing temp work. I don't want to make it sound like the people weren't great. The people were great. What I had to do was just not challenging. Okay. So what did I get out of ACT? I am so grateful for that experience. I, it was, it probably, it made me who I am as an actor. It gave me the foundation of my technique. It was the right school for me. I mean, that's one thing I'll say to your listeners. If you're going to go to grad school, visit the grad school. Make sure it's a school that's right for you because the schools are very, very different. And I was lucky enough. I took an evening extension course there, an audition course. And the minute I walked in the doors of that building, I knew I was in the right place. And then I met the teacher, and I really knew I was in the right place. They were – it was, you know, it at that time – it was a company run by a man who was an artistic genius, and I do not use that word loosely, of incredibly talented actors putting on some pretty beautiful theater and some junk like every other theater. And those actors were teaching us. So we got to learn from them and then walk across the street and watch them work. And it was a dream come true. We were acting from morning till night, you know, Um we took ballet, we took t- yoga, we took, you know, voice, speech, m- movement, uh, scene study, Shakespeare, sk- text, you know, from people who really knew what they were talking about. You know, Dakin Matthews was my text teacher. I, I had Debbie Cecil, who's, you know, one of the most foremost authorities on accents of the country was my accent and, t- and scansion teacher. And, and then I had these extraordinary actors. And then I had, I was blessed with a class of extraordinary people and actors who are still my closest friends. I mean, probably a day doesn't go by that I don't call someone from ACT who was a classmate. When I got married, I looked around and there was probably about 15 people from ACT. That's how close they, we still are. Um, it was able, it was a very weird school. It was very competitive in the sense that they accepted when I was going there, they accepted 48 students. And the second year, they arbitrarily cut half of the class. And the third year, they asked back five of us. And some years they asked back three, some years I've asked back 10. You know, it, it was, it was, so it was awful. So you spent the whole time thinking, I'm going to be gone. And yet somehow they managed to, for me anyway, I never felt competitive with my classmates ever. I only felt competitive with myself. So that was really nice. So, so what that gave me was an importance of an ensemble. And not only that, the teachers who we were idolizing performing across the street would come and see our projects and stop you in the hallway and say, 
Hey, you were great in that project. I thought you were so wonderful. I mean, to hear Peter Donat, who was this extraordinary regional theater actor, to hear Barbara Derrickson say to you, I think you're really good, just like, you know, rock your world. And what I took from that was we are all a family. We're all in this together. And I think that's a really important lesson. So aside from technique and humanity, if you ask me what I didn't get, I guess what I think I would add to it now is they should have been, they were very insular. When we were in the third year, we weren't allowed to take outside work. In fact, I did. I got a movie when I was in, an independent movie when I was in the third year. And actually I did get to do it because the third year they were a little more lenient about that. And I had the time, but you couldn't go away and do any work when you were there, which was probably good, but they treated the whole world like it didn't exist. And we really needed, we needed business classes. We needed audition classes. We needed the school where I teach now has all that, and I think that's as it should be. We never auditioned for anything when we were there. We didn't audition for our projects. Everything was assigned. We were so cosseted. So that's what that's the part of it I would add. We had one audition class from this great guy, George Deloy, and, and I learned a lot from that one class. But he came for a couple of weeks, and that was it. And we had some, you know, monologue classes, but they never talked to us about the business of it, and they never talked to us about what it feels like to walk into a room and I take that back. We had a few things here and there. We had some grad students talk to us about that, but you know, it's a business and you need, you know, I guess, you know, when you go to business school, they have fairs and they have people come and interview you and they teach you how to interview. I assume maybe they don't, I, they should, but it's a huge part of being an actor. We just, we think we go around thinking we're actors, we're artists and we are, but we have to know how to make a career out of it too. Right, of course. Yeah, I mean, the, the the craft is important, but there's almost kind of a level of being able to do the work is kind of the bare minimum. Like you have to at least be able to do the work. But then how do you market yourself? How do you manage your finances? How do you, you know, all these other things that go into mm-hmm. sustaining a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not, you know, it sounds like uh, some of the actors who were employed by ACT at the time, you know, they were they were probably in a great situation where they were teaching and acting and and they probably didn't have to think about these things as much as kind of workaday actors. Uh, yeah, that's right. Like it, it was, now. Yeah, it was a true repertory company. They didn't, they were employed there 52 weeks out of the year for the most part. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and that is really great that you mentioned that competitiveness just with yourself. Was mm-hmm. that, was that how you were like from, from the beginning? Uh, and, and I imagine that's, you know, something you've carried with you, but like, did that start at a young age that you only ever felt competitive with yourself? I mean, I don't, I, 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 I'm not going to say I don't notice other people and I don't fixate on somebody who I think, oh, that's the person who has my career or that's the person that always gets the parts I want. Of course. Sure, I do that. But yeah, I think I'm just lucky that way. I don't really, um, I mean, anybody who's really good, you just are feel honored to be in their presence and learn from them. And yeah, I, yeah, I think I have always been like that. I've always just been... I've always, I've never had a, I know when I'm bad and I don't have any problem saying that was not my best work. Um, and I know when I'm good and I don't want to talk about it. You know, it's funny. Leo likes to really process afterwards what happened with the performance and hear what the audience thinks. And I just want to go home and go to sleep. I, it's like, I did it. It's done. Next. So, so what is the, the difference there? Well, like, what does good work feel like versus bad work? Like, when do you know you've, you're, you're in one versus the other? 
you fulfilled the requirements of the, of the part. Sometimes you don't, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a long conversation about what is it to fulfill the requirements of, of a role. Sure. And, and I know when I, I know when I'm not. <laughs> so just based on everything you've kind of worked My on. Criteria. Up to yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, uh, yeah, it is a much longer conversation, but what are just on a high level, what are some of the criteria you put into that? Um, feel, uh, telling the truth, being present, being able to take whatever is given to you and not try to make it the performance that you prepared, but having a really clear, 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 clear picture of what the play is about and what the requirements of what you're contribution is to the play and then having the freedom to just to step out and let whatever happen is going to happen. I mean, acting is a, the greatest example of Zen. <laughs> I mean, it's like absolute preparation, discipline, and then complete letting go of that. You know, I mean, the, to- uh, the entire time you're acting, you are absolutely aware that you're acting and you should be absolutely free to do whatever happens. And that is it. And that is a, um, contradiction of terms. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very common for a lot of successful people, uh, you know, and that doesn't necessarily need to be financially successful, but there's kind of this level of you do all this work and then you throw all of it away, whether you're you're acting or you're in sports, you know, you're not obsessing about the details right. while you're in the middle of it. You right. have to just kind of trust that you are ready to do whatever you need to. You have those instincts um, developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's right, Nathan. You have to, uh, you have these instincts, but you have to develop them. That's exactly right. You have to develop your instincts. Okay. So you, you get through ACT. You're one of the, the, the coveted few that make it through all three years, including the, the film, uh, senior year that you get Mm -hmm. to do. And then do you stay in San Francisco? Do you go to New York? Do you go to LA? No, because then Nathan, what I needed to do was I was not going to go to New York. I had no interest in going to New York because I did not want to go back to the East Coast. Uh, so I decided to go to LA because I wanted to have, I really wanted to have a regional theater career or I wanted to go to New York and do plays. I wanted to be a theater actor primarily, but I saw, you know, you talk about those actors in ICT that were secured. They also, they also would talk about how much they didn't have that much money, you know, and I didn't want to get stuck like that. And so, and also I will say after three years at ACT, it did, I did feel like I needed to meet other people and I needed to go out into the world. And so in those days they had this thing called the league auditions and the, there were seven, I think, grad schools that went to New York and we did this uh, audition at Juilliard and, um, and all these agents and casting directors would be there. And I got an agent and I went to LA. I got an agent in LA. And, um, so I moved down to LA and I started doing TV. I mean, it sounds very kind of simple that way. Like, Oh, I went to this audition, got an, like somebody just called you from the, from the league auditions. That, and... It was simple. I mean, that was the wow. real advantage of going to a really at that time prestigious grad school that if you, if you were in that league, and you went to these auditions, you got seen by every agent in New York and every agent in LA. And I got a bunch of offers and, and, and I went with the one that was in LA and that I liked the most. And, and, um, and I started working. I got the second job I'd, I got. I think I, I think I got a job like the third day I was in LA doing this little tiny part in a TV movie. And, really? um, and I just kept working. I kept doing these little tiny parts, but I had my health insurance like in two weeks. I mean, it, w- it was easy to get your health insurance then too. But, um, 
it was great. I just, I, I had, a, it was really boring. I was in Los Angeles sitting around waiting for auditions. I didn't have that many auditions, but I did enough television work to support myself. I did a whole bunch of small roles on TV. And did you feel like you knew what you wanted to do with your career in LA? Like you were very yes. targeted? Nathan, what I was going to do, I don't know what happened. What I was going to do was I was going to get a television series and then I was going to, that was going to free me up to do any, you know, kind of theater that I wanted to do. <laughs> and, uh, how, how close, how close did the, the, did you come to that? Well, I did do recurring roles on television and I did, you know, I went to network, you know, I, you know, I tested for shows and stuff like that. I mean, the irony but, is you have done a lot of regional theater. So even well, not I'll being tell you a what series happened. regular. When I went to, when I went to my agency, they said to me, you're not going to do any theater now because you're going to do television. So for three years, I didn't do any theater and then, and, and I remember there was an audition for Arms and the Man came up, which is a play. I really wanted to do that play. And my agent said, no, can't do it. We have to have you around. And it's not like I was going out every day. I wasn't. I was, you know, there were weeks when I didn't go out. I was literally sitting in my apartment waiting for the phone to ring. And then I finally got this audition at the Old Globe for Romeo and Juliet with a director I'd worked with before who I loved and who loved me. And I went down there. And I opened my mouth and I didn't have a voice anymore because I hadn't been doing stage work for three years. It was just like my voice was gone. My stage voice, my vocal production. Sure. And, um, and that's when I sort of realized, you know what? I'm not going to not do theater anymore. I'm not, my goal is not to play five lines on ER. That's not what my goal is. So I started doing um, theater again, and fortuitously, that agent actually, not because of this, but that agent let me go around that time, and I went to an agency that did tons of television, was primarily a television agent, but they were happy to have me do theater. It was really lucky. Was that and, a connection that came about through, uh, you know, other actors you knew? Or, yes, or how? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, so then I started doing theater again, and that's when I started doing a lot of regional theater. This actually kind of uh, leads me into. I want to. I want to talk about the the piece of text you wanted to work on mm-hmm. today. It's it's still considered a new play, right? Yeah, I think it was written a few years ago. Okay, so it's it's Charles the Third, and who who's the writer? It's King Charles the Third, and King Charles the Third. Yeah, it's by Mike Bartlett. Okay, um, who's the guy that wrote that play, Cock? Oh, um, okay. I, yeah. I I've heard of the play. Um, yeah, he's really good. So. I have the text in front of me, and for for people listening, I'll I'll put a excerpt you know online so you can actually right. follow along. Along, but um, what are you? What what did you want to uh, share with us in terms of uh, what you're doing in the play? And well, I'm playing uh, I'm playing small parts in this play. I'm not doing anything exciting, although the play is really exciting. Um, and this is one of the small parts I'm playing, and. Um, it's written, the play is written in iambic pentameter for the most part. And okay. it's, it's, it's written in the structure of a Shakespearean, really tragedy, even though it's basically a comedy. And there's a ghost, there's a, you know, there are references to Shakespeare. It, it's very subtly done. And, and it's, but it's about the current King Charles and Camilla and Kate and William and all of those people are in this play. Right. And, yeah. Uh, uh, just to state the obvious for people listening, it's when Elizabeth II, Queen Elizabeth II, you know, passes on. Right. And what Charles happens when become, Charles? Yeah. yeah. What happens when Charles takes over as king? 
So in this scene, I'm playing uh, a TV producer. I chose it because of the very little time I had to think about this and because I thought, well, you know what? This scene stands on its own. It's, it's, if I was going to talk to you about, you know, for example, last year I played Hedda Gabler. If I was going to talk to you about that, I just don't know how to contain that. So mm-hmm. I thought this is much easier because this, this whole character appears for two, two or three pages of the play and then you never see her again. And so I thought it would be an easy way to talk about it. And you're currently in rehearsals for this. Uh, right. So, so you're actively working on it right now, which right. is, uh, which exactly. is pretty cool. I'm really glad you could bring this in. Yeah. We're in the second. I haven't even, we haven't gotten, even gotten this scene up on his feet yet. Oh, okay, cool. We've only done table work for this so far. So for people to visualize, it, it looks like a Shakespeare play in that it's written in blank verse. Um, and so the, the lines do not go all the way from margin to margin. It's, it's written, if you opened it up and looked at it from afar, it would look like a Shakespeare play written in blank verse. That's right, except for a couple of scenes in prose. Yep. Okay, okay. So, um, so for the TV producer, and this is someone... I assume is producing some kind of segment for Charles and and Charles is going to yeah Charles is going to make a speech and the, the producer is just coming in and setting setting the stage for that. So you're you're asking me so how do I how did I approach this how did I work on it? Yeah, so what, like what questions you've asked yourself or how you've looked at this whether it's from a technical standpoint or an imagination standpoint mm-hmm. or character standpoint, you know, just those kinds of uh, well, platforms. Yeah. The first thing I want to say before I even read it is um, when I start rehearsal, if I can, and that's most of the time, um, I arrive off book for the first day of rehearsal because I can't, A, I cannot stand being on stage with a script in my hand. I can't stand not being able to look at someone. And everybody knows that even when the first time you get up, uh, you're still struggling for the lines. The minute you look into somebody else's eyes, you get very disoriented. So even if you are off book, you're confused. So I want to get that part of rehearsal over with as soon as possible so that I can get to the good part of rehearsal. But I also feel like I never, I cannot, for someone who's as big a reader as I am, I don't really understand the text until I memorize it. Until I, until I've committed those words to memory, it's all, it's all this theory. And, um, so that's, that's for me why I have to, to, to memorize it. And I would say that before I, you know, before I start memorizing, I, I read the text, I read the play, I try to read the play two or three times at least, especially if it's a new play before I start memorizing. And then usually, you know, because time is an element, you're usually racing the clock for this. Um, I just every day sit down for an hour and I start memorizing just by rote, but I can't, I don't move on until I, in other words, that is helping me to understand it. Like that's how I start learning what the play is about by memorizing it. Hmm. Um, but I can't memorize it until I understand it. So, so, sure. for, so, so, um, so it takes me a while. Like I don't memorize quickly. Um, cause it, until it makes sense to me, I can't keep it in my head. So, so if you look at this text, you'll see that it's not, uh, it's like Shakespeare, it's easier to understand than Shakespeare, but it's not immediately understandable. So, or you know what, Nathan, do you have it in front of you? Yes. You read it. All right. Because I'll tell you why later. Go ahead. Okay, good. All right. Now, do you want me to think about how to read it or just read it? I want you to read it for sense. 
Okay. To make sense of it. This may seem strange, but sometimes I wake up from nightmares where I have been on TV and something's happened. Just by chance, perhaps, a light is blown or chair collapsed, but I am shocked and jumping look ridiculous. And then that clip goes viral, and from then, forevermore, I am the girl who jumped. It is the matter of my life, and when I die, it will be writ. It will be what is writ. Not all I did and wanted and achieved, but that. A captured idiocy stuck on repeat. Your Majesty, welcome. Here's the microphone into which you'll speak. The auto cue is there. Nice job, Nathan. You made a really good <laughs> sense of that. You did. Well, uh, I, I, I've had good teachers. You <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, so that was pretty, that was clear. So what jumped out for me was that two, the two things that I discovered that I didn't discover the first time I read them through, just like you did, is that She's responding to something he just said. He's just like we always are, even if we start the scene. Something just happened before the scenes happened. And what he's just said to her is she's talking to the guy who is the, um, he does publicity. You know, he, he handles press for the king. Sure, he says, sure, sure. he says to her, you know, would you like to be one of them? And she says, you mean a king? And he says, I mean the woman who's asked to stand in front of the camera and right. instead of what, do what we do, which is hide behind it. And so I say, you know, this may seem strange, but sometimes I wake up from nightmares where I have been on TV. Not mm. where I've been on TV, but where I have been on TV. And that seems so subtle, but it's the whole point of the monologue. And it's right. so easy to miss that. And really, just because it's the way my mind works, this is where I start with what exactly are you trying to say? Not generally, but what are the major ideas that you're trying to impart? And like any big classical monologue in Shakespeare, she starts with her thesis statement, which is, this may seem strange, but sometimes I wake up from nightmares where I have been on TV, and then here's what happens. And she never really gets to finish her thought because he interrupts it. But And so then, where something's happened just by chance, perhaps a light is blown, a chair collapsed, but I am shocked. So there's the first event, right? So something's happened. So a nightmare. I have this nightmare. But then the event happens. I'm shocked and jumping look ridiculous. And then that clip goes viral. And then that's the next event. Mm. See, this is a speech where it just seems like the face of it, like she's just, if you do it badly, you're just telling a story. But really... You know, as, as always, you want to play an action and she's having this conversation with this guy. She's trying to make the point and the point is, I do think about those things, but ultimately, what is the point? Is the point, does it matter that I have this? I mean, this is what we don't get to know because the king walks in on her and interrupts her. She tells this terrible nightmare where I have been on TV and shot, jumping the this. And then that clip. So here's the other thing I noticed. Because that's the idea I started with. There were two things I noticed that you didn't get that I didn't get the first name either. And then that clip goes viral. And from then forevermore, I am the girl who jumped. Not it is the matter of my life, but it is the matter of my life. That thing, that thing that happened to me. And I think mm -hmm. if we don't say it is the matter of my life, or it is the matter of my life, 
And I'm sorry, it is the matter of my life. And when I die, it will be what is writ. Not it will be what is writ. That's what they're going to write about. They're going to write about that thing. Sure. That's what we need to hear. That thing, that stupid thing I did. Because the point of the speech, obviously, is that you can do one inconsequential thing. You can sneeze, which has some, nothing to do with anything. And that will become the story of your life. That's what the media has done to us, you know? Um, it's turned us into sound bites, you know? Right. Well, I mean, one of the first things I, w- I want to comment on is that I love how you're talking about this because it's so easy whether you're doing, you know, just a monologue from a play for an audition or, or something, if you just want to learn it, or even if you're doing a monologue in a play, it's very easy to kind of compartmentalize that monologue and almost separate it from the play. Uh, you know, you're just like, oh, this is my this is my speech in, you know, Act 3, Scene 2, and I got to learn this. But you know, it's it's just as important to really contextualize that piece because it's not lifted out of the play. It's everything. And in fact, when we were at the table, the first question I asked was, I don't know why this scene is in the play. And it's really, I think, what you need to ask yourself in every scene you have in the play, why this scene? Why this scene now? What is the playwright trying to tell with this scene? It can't just be... I need to tell a story here. Something, you know, and and then around the table, we had this really good discussion and a lot of people said a lot of really interesting things and a lot of it made sense. And I'm still not sure. You know, we haven't, like I said, we haven't been on our feet with this scene yet. And it's, it is interesting to me that it's an interrupted, I mean, you get that the point is one small thing can change somebody's life. One small thing can define who you are. And it's interesting that the, you know, the whole, the whole play is about, is Charles going to, Charles wants to do this thing that nobody else wants him to do. And the media is, has a, has a, has a big part in that. This is the only time you get a chance to see it sort of from the other point of view with this TV producer. And you see that, boy, she has thought of it from that. But what are we to make of that? The play never really tells you. It just lets you decide. Do you apply, because it is written in iambic pentameter, do you apply the same kind of Shakespeare training mm-hmm. about the beats and, and alliteration? Mm-hmm. And, and do, yep. do you you look at it the exact same way as if it were, I do. you know, measure for measure or whatever? I okay. do. It's going to, I think that there will some people, there will, might be some people who don't even know it's in iambic pentameter. Um, of course. I think when we, you do it yeah. right, you won't hear that particularly because I'm saying things like, here's the microphone into which you'll speak. But, um, I do. And, and, and in fact, we all are, uh, we're all right. looking at it that way. And there's a couple of, um, you know, added syllables. But anyway, then, so, so I, I really do. I think about, okay, so what exactly, literally what am I, what are the points I'm trying to make? Just literally, what does the language mean? We're, right. We get very sloppy about that. And it can happen in the most modern play. You, don't even understand intellectually what you're, what you're trying to say. And what am I trying to, and then what am I trying to do with that language is the next crucial question. Why do I bother to have this big long speech? Why do I need to tell this guy this speech? And there are so many questions that I still haven't answered about this, which is how comfortable am I with this guy, James? You know, we talked a little bit about this at the table. You know, we're assuming I'm the go-to person that I generally do these things from the palace, but it's possible I'm not because this is an event that's never happened before. It's not the traditional annual King's speech or anything like that. And it's sort of hastily put together. Now, do you feel like directors really push you to answer these questions or this is like, this is on you? Like you, you have to push yourself to answer these questions. 
do, do you feel like directors have time to kind of go into this and really ask this and make sure you're discovering this? Or is this just, this is your job as the actor, you have to push yourself to do it? Both, both. I mean, I, okay. I don't know why you do it unless you're not asking. For me, that's the fun of it. And, yeah. and, and, and that when I was talking earlier about I'm not doing my job, if I, if I'm not doing this, I'm not doing my job. And some directors who are very interested in this and some directors who are not at all interested in this stuff. And that depends, but it doesn't matter because we're doing it. And, um, the actors are doing it always, all the time. And, and they'll never know everything you're thinking, nor should they. They're, they have to think about other things. You have to think about every single solitary moment. You can never have a line for my money that's just information. You're never there. I don't care if that's the playwright's intent or not. You are never, ever there just to say, and then she said this. There's always a point of view. There's always a need. There's always a, even if the line goes by in a blink, it's about something. Something's happening. Because, of course, that's how we are every day. Like, nobody ever says anything right. just for informational purposes. That's <laughs> there's right. always some There's always some motive, uh, as benign as it might be. That's right. Even if it's somebody behind an information desk giving you information, they are either getting you out the door as quickly as they can, or they are engaging you or flirting with you or ignoring you. They're doing something. You know, discouraging you, they're doing something. I know there's a very quick look at this piece of text, but it was, it was really um, it was really interesting to look at. It, and I know we could spend more time going through it. I, I just had a couple more um, more shorter questions. You may have longer answers, but we can <laughs> we can we can uh, keep them contained a little bit because you read so much. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it sounds like you always have. What are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Oh, my God. What a great question. Oh, wow. I mean, that is that's. Wow, you should have asked me this in advance. Uh, but I'll tell you <laughs> off the top we don't have of my to say head. Your, yeah, right off the top of your head. Don't have to be your favorite. Why, I'll start from the beginning. Harriet the Spy was was formative for me. I read it, I've probably read it, I don't know, 15 times? I don't know. That book, for some reason, just spoke to me. And I think when anything really speaks to me, it's because they're, for the first time, showing me something about life that is so true to my experience, but I've never heard anybody say out loud. Do you know where it's like, wow, nobody's ever, I, I, I've never seen that in print or in a movie or in a television show before. And they're saying that now. And either I've thought about it or I hadn't thought about it, but now that you bring it to my attention, yes, that's always been true for me. And that's what that book did for me. And also the long secret, which followed it up. I, th- that book was just, I don't know. It's just, I had many books like that as, as a child, but that was the, 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 the one that jumps to my mind first. And as an adult, oh gosh, I mean, I gotta, you know, I, I want to say Middlemarch because, but I was just thinking about this recently. I haven't read it in so long. I can barely remember what it was about, but I felt that way when I read it. I just loved it so much. It's called um, Middlemarch. Yeah. By George Eliot. Middlemarch. Okay. One word. Yeah. And, um, I read it because I kept, I really like Victorian novels. I really love Charles Dickens. And I mean, I haven't read those books recently. It's funny. I mean, th- that's sort of iconically what's in my head. And I also, I really love American writers. I love Sinclair Lewis and that Main Street was the first book of his I read. And that really struck me. It's about this 
woman who's sort of stuck in this loveless marriage and she's very creative and she has this theater group and this poetry group and she's trying to break out and she goes to Chicago. It's it's a really interesting book. And uh, kind of sounds like almost sounds like your your mom, you know, had had yeah, lived, like yes. doing something. Yes. Yeah. That's very true. I never thought of anything. That's very true. And I was thinking there was this other book and I also recently have been reading um I was just thinking about this book the other day. I just loved it so much. Uh this other American writer. I want to say it's Booth Tarkington who wrote uh The Magnificent Ambersons which is a book that I really recommend to people if you feel that modern life is getting you down, if you feel like all those emails and and uh, tweets and everything is just too much information. Because what he's writing about is when the culture changed from horse and carriages to cars and uh, how the American life shifted, how people used to sit on their front porch and watch bicyclists go by and how it changed when a car zoomed by. And I just, it was very, it's something I'm dealing with right now. And it just was very moving and impactful to me. So that's off the top of my head. I think I named four books. Yeah, no, those those are great. (laughs) Uh, Now, I also know you do a lot of teaching and, uh, you know, both in L.A. and, and, and other places and, and you're, you know, kind of, uh, you know, other actor work is working with companies around the world. now. So you're, you're working with a lot of different people, but specifically with students, you, you know, you're working with a lot of people probably at the beginning of their career, uh, younger people, maybe just out of college or around college age. What advice would you give to, that you feel like could really help them or what do you feel like you are offering to your students? I hope not, obviously, just one thing. I, I What I see in my students is this. What I see that I love is their, um, just how much they love the words and they love the experience of being an actor and how important it is to him and that, them. And that keeps me going. That keeps my engine going. They, they're not cynical at all. And I love that. And what I want to absolve them of is feeling like there's one way to do it and there's an answer and there's a right way that, as you get older and the more you do, A, it does get easier. You will learn skills, it, but it takes time. And you just got to let work hard and let go. Work hard and let go. Work hard and let go and see what happens. Um, there's no one right way to do it. Um, and I know it's not consoling when you so are a sponge and want to learn. But And then the other thing I'll say, and this may sound funny, I think that this generation of people, at least the actors that I work with, they're afraid of the bigness of emotion, of the enormity of feeling. And I, I think it's partly because, you know, we grow up in television where everything is, yeah, no. But also because there's less human interaction and more interaction with screens. And I think... Go see theater, watch old movies. The, the capacity for human feeling, those feelings that you have deep inside you have to be, um, you gotta let them out. <laughs> you, you, they can't be small. Um, I, 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 I see this and maybe it's just from where I am. Maybe I was the same way, but there's this hesitancy to love big, rage deeply. Uh, all that stuff. Um, that's the stuff of plays and that's the stuff of life. And, um, don't be afraid of that. 
Thank you, Mickey. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. I, I, I love that I get to learn more about someone that I already know. Well, we'll have to turn the tables next time, Nathan, and I'll interview you. <laughs> Maybe that'll be a possibility. See, I have, I have two texts from Douglas Sills, my classmate from ACT. That's how it goes. <laughs> oh, that, sound, that sounds great. All right. Thanks again, Nikki. Okay. Thank you. It's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments and thank you very much for doing that. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show at WA Journey on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial from Audible. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening.